So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 15. There's three parables that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to focus primarily on the third one. And it's probably a familiar story to many of you, but I want you to listen to it with fresh ears, and, and let's come to the text with fresh eyes this morning. Jesus is ministering not just to his disciples when we pick it up in Luke 15, but he's actually talking to a crowd of people. And this is a mixture of religious Pharisees and scribes and also followers of Jesus. And he starts to tell three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in this, he's demonstrating the Godhead. Right? He's telling us the story about Jesus, the Son of God, who's our great shepherd. The Holy Spirit who comes and sweeps the house looking for what has been lost. And the Father who stands waiting in anticipation for sons and daughters to come back home. We're going to focus on the third parable. So Jesus tells of the great shepherd that would go after the one lost sheep and leave the 99. And then he talks about the woman who would up in her house, lighting a lamp and sweeping the house until the lost coin is found. The beautiful thing about that is it's a coin as part of a collection. If you don't know this context here, uh, back in back in those days, they didn't wear wedding rings. They had different things that symbolized marriage coming in. One of those things was a collection of silver coins. So when the woman in the parable loses a coin, what, what is being jeopardized is the symbol of covenant and marriage. And so she's sweeping the house, not because it's just a cool collector's coin, but because it means something of eternal significance to her. It's her covenant of marriage. She sweeps the house, and when she finds it, covenant is restored. It's a picture of how the Holy Spirit will come and sweep our hearts to find the hidden places that we tucked away from the Lord that's jeopardizing our relationship with him. But then he goes to the, the longest of the three parables, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus, talking to the crowd, says, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so the father divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son uh, gathered together everything and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in wild living. Now, some of your translations might say prodigal living. Prodigal living, riotous living, wild living. The point is, the son took what he had been given in his inheritance. And he walked away from the father and he wasted it. The heart-wrenching thing about even the question of can I have my inheritance is that in Jewish custom, you didn't receive your inheritance until the father had passed away. You see, the father was busy amassing wealth and land and animals, and at the end of his life, it was his duty to hand over everything he had gained so that the son could build off of a foundation that he didn't have to start from square one. And he could take that further. But when the young man says to his dad, give me what I'm entitled to now, while you're still healthy, 
you're still around. What he's saying is, you're as good as dead to me. Because I'd rather have what you can give me than to have you. I'd rather take what I think is mine by entitlement, but I actually don't want you around. And that sounds really harsh, but I feel like sometimes we do that to the Lord. God, I want your stuff. I just don't have time for you. I want healing. I want miracles. I want I want a, a, a Bible verse that I can pin to my dashboard to make me feel good. I just don't have time for you. Oh, I want blessing. Oh, stuff is tough at work. I need financial provision. God, just hand it to me so I can go off and use what you have. Because I'd rather have your stuff than to have you. That's what this boy was saying. Dad, give me what's mine because I'd rather have your stuff than to have you. The amazing thing is the father complies with this request. He actually hands the son his inheritance. It's because God is so good that he won't withhold from us. It's our own decisions that bring consequences upon us, but he's a good, good father, and he'll hand you stuff. God will even let you cheat on him with his own stuff. So this, this young man, he goes off, and he falls into wild living, and then to summarize a little bit, he, he gets to this far-off country, and wouldn't you know it, he's wasted his money, and a famine hits. Now, a lot of us, when we go through these seasons where... We sometimes don't make the best decision, and all of a sudden things break down and things don't go well. Man, we're quick to blame the devil. Oh, the devil's really after me this week. He's just he's just attacking me. He's just tearing me down. Well, maybe, but maybe it's a byproduct of our own decisions. Maybe we're just experiencing the consequences that have come to us by way of our own making. This young man goes, I'm going to waste all my living partying it up. And then a famine hits and he goes, man, well, that's terrible timing. I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've, I've made terrible decisions and then felt like, God, why are you allowing the enemy to attack me? And he said, it's not the enemy. You did this to yourself. Now, God doesn't leave us there. But it's important to understand that he didn't get us there either. We get ourselves there, and then we ask him to pick us up. So what happens is in the middle of this famine, this boy is so in need of work and finances that it says he joins himself to a stranger or to a citizen of a far-off country. What's wrong with that? It's a good employment, right? The problem is, Jesus was very intentional when he used that word stranger or a citizen of another country. What he was saying is that boy is now attached to someone that doesn't value what he's been raised to value. He's attached to somebody that doesn't love his God. He's attached to somebody whose value system isn't what he was raised to have. And so where does he stick the young man? In the most deplorable place for a Jewish boy to find himself. In a pig pen. Why? Because to the Jews, pigs are unclean, so they wouldn't eat them. But imagine, it's not even, he's so hungry that he wants to eat them. 
He knows that that's, that's against the law of Moses. In fact, he lays there and he fantasizes about eating what the pigs eat. Think about Jesus talking to religious leaders about this story. And he's saying, hey, you know how like you're all prim and proper in your dress and you, you have your show and you look all put together? Imagine your, your son is laying in a pig pen and he's feeding the very animals that you're not even permitted to eat. What a mess. Jesus wanted to highlight something very important. That outside of death, there was no greater disrespect that this boy could have experienced. And, and and then to make it worse, he's attached to someone who doesn't actually care about him, who doesn't love him. So then we pick it up in verse 17. It says, but when he came to his senses, or when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here from hunger. I'll set out to go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So just treat me as one of your hired laborers. Now, it's wonderful that the young man came to himself. And it's wonderful that the young man thought the only way back home is repentance. So I need to prepare an apology speech. That's good. The problem is what we see in these few quick verses is that something tragic has taken place. The son has forfeited his identity. So he's not in the pig pen going, man, if I could just get back to dad, he'll make everything better. He's saying, man, maybe if I come low enough, dad will accept me not back as a son, but at least he'll hire me as a laborer. Why did he have that mentality? Because how did the stranger treat him? As a hired hand. And eventually when you're pairing yourself with people who don't have your value system, who don't love your God, who don't care about you, they just need you, they'll use you 100% of the time. If somebody doesn't love you, but they need you, they'll just use you. And that's what happened to this young man. He's being used, and he says, well, now I'm just used to it. So I might as well go to somewhere where I know it won't be a pig pen. And I'll just accept being used in my father's house. We get that mentality in Christianity. God, I'm not good enough. Just use me. And, and, and we, don't, we don't acknowledge the fact that it's identity that he wants to restore. The sin he's dealt with, now he has to deal with you. He has to restore your identity. So the son says, I just need to go back to dad's house and maybe he'll treat me like a servant because that's all I know. He had been paired up with people who did not love him. And so he then, listen, this is key, he then translates the aspects or the characteristics of those foreigners onto his father. Don't we do that? We get hurt, brokenhearted, we get messed up by somebody we thought loved us and they they showed that they didn't actually care about us. We end up brokenhearted and all of a sudden, the aspects of betrayal and of hurt and of the damage done, we start to apply it to God. Well, God, how could you let them do that to me? Do you even love me? You loved me. And all of a sudden, the lens we see the stranger with is the lens we apply to the Father. And that's what this young man was doing. Oh, if, if I'm good enough to feed pigs, maybe Dad will take me back and I'll be good enough to help clean the house or work the fields. 
So he prepares this apology speech. In verse 20 it says, he set out and came to his father. But goodness, it says, when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. The father is standing on the porch, looking out into the distance. How long? We don't know. Could have been days, months, years. We know it, it was long enough for the son to spoil his living, get into a famine, get into an employment where he's feeding pigs, and then decide to come home. The point is the father never gave up. Unfortunately, we as fathers and mothers in the faith sometimes turn the lights off on the porch and say, well, they're on their own. It's not what the Heavenly Father does demonstrated in this parable. The Father's actually standing on the porch. I'm sure there were days where his wife said, Honey, it's getting late. The sun's come down. Why don't you just come inside? And he said, Just five more minutes. Maybe five more minutes and I'll see him come over the horizon. But one day that came true. He sees his son. And he's like, Is that him? Wait, that looks like my boy. Now, it's not how I remember him. He's a little, it's a little dirty. It's a little smelly. But once he recognized it was him, he ran to him. He ran to him. Why? Well, because he loved him. And he missed him. That was his son. But also, we got to know the Jewish context here. And the law of Moses, dishonoring a father to the degree that this son did, was punishable by death. The father ran after his boy because he said, no one's going to lay a hand on him. I'm going to wrap myself around him, and I'm going to cover him so that no one comes after him. See, the father had compassion, and it moved his legs to run after him in protection. Charles Spurgeon says, slow are the feet of repentance, but swift are the feet of mercy. Wrapping him in his arms, hugging and kissing the boy. In fact, the son can barely get his apology speech out to the father before it's already smacking lips everywhere. He's kissing him. He's hugging him. Why? Because he's protecting him in mercy. And he's compassionate in knowing that his son that was lost is now returned home. The father hugs this young man out of his shame. And that's what our heavenly father wants to do. He's standing on porches looking out in the distance for sons and daughters who aren't lost. They're just not home. And he's longing to come and run after you and wrap his arms around you and hug you out of every shameful place you've been. He doesn't care how you smell. You might smell like the pig pen. You might look like the foreigners. You might think, well, maybe I should clean myself up before dad dirties himself hugging me. The father ran after him. He longs to run after you. The problem is we think in ourselves, oh, but... If I'm really, truly vulnerable, that'll make the Lord want to run away, not run to. We think, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know my story. You don't know how bad I was. You don't know the kind of pig pins I said. Dane Orland says, he's a Presbyterian minister out of Chicago. He says, the thing that makes you cringe the most makes him hug the tightest. The part of you that makes you want to recoil is the part of him that says, give it to me, and I'll hug you out of it. I'll hug you out of that shame. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. God formed you with a purpose. 
I was praying about the scripture one day, and the Lord said, you know, I formed the hands in the womb that would nail mine to the cross. All things were created by him and through him and to him. He literally, they're for his glory, but he literally formed hands in the womb that would pick up a hammer and nails and nail him to the tree. And we think, well, I can't be vulnerable about my sin. The devil knows your sin and he knows your name, but so does God. The difference is the devil calls you by your sin, but God calls you by name. So you start to think, oh, I've messed up too bad. I've done this. I've done that. Literally, when the Lord was forming you in your mother's womb, he said, I know what your story is. The end from the beginning. This is so beautifully illustrated in the story that I heard. There was a, a master tapestry weaver. He would weave these ornate, beautiful tapestries that would hang in art museums. And he got to the end of his life and he said, you know, I need an apprentice. I need someone to carry on what I've learned. And so he hires this apprentice and he takes them under his wing. And as his final project, he agrees to weave a tapestry with his apprentice. And so they, they work on it together. Hand in hand, they're weaving this beautifully ornate tapestry. And they get done with it and it goes on display in the museum and everyone comes in and marvel at this tapestry. Oh my goodness, it's so beautiful, it's so lovely, it's so intricately designed. And they stand back and they start to applaud the master. And they say, you are such a good teacher. You taught this, this intern. You taught this apprentice how to weave just like you. And you taught them so well, they didn't make a single mistake. And the master sat there and smiled a little bit. And he said, you don't understand. It's not that the apprentice didn't mess up. Because there were mistakes made. But the master said, I anticipated the mistakes. And I wove them into the design. That's what the Lord's done for you and for me. He anticipated the mistakes I would make. And he wove them into my story. So that through Christ, I now have a testimony to lean on. I have a story that can touch other people. See, he can take the parts of me that make me want to recoil. And he said, no, 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 no. I've woven them into your story. And I've already made appropriation for them to be discounted. They won't hurt you. But they will be used by you. Because the, the word says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. He weaves together our story. Mistakes and all. Why? Because even our mistakes will bring him glory. Because he overcame. One of my favorite verses in the, in the entire Bible, Colossians 2.14, it says he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to his cross. You know that there was, there was written things about you and your story that were against you that we're going to try to bring you down. That we're going to try to identify you and say you'll never be more than this. And Jesus said, hand me that letter. That contrary list of things that's against you. He took it and by his blood nailed it to the cross. Taking it out of the way and declaring new identity over you and over me. He wove, he wove it into my story. 
He weaves your story. And he allows it to bring him glory. So then let's finish up this story. The father's kissing the son. The son's struggling to get his apology out. Verse 21, he says, says, the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight are no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father didn't even acknowledge the son's apology. Why? He'd already forgiven him before he said it. The son's repentance was him coming back home. The father knew where his heart was. He knew why he was standing there. He'd already forgiven. He didn't need to hear the apology speech. He lets us apologize because sometimes we need to hear the speech. But the father stands there and says, not to the son, but to his servants. Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and slaughter. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now we call this story the story of the prodigal son. But notice in this entire telling of it, Jesus never calls the boy a prodigal son. He says he fell into prodigal living. He never calls him a prodigal son. This story is not about the son. It's about the forgiving father who stands waiting for the son to make the journey back home. Now, the son comes, and what we talked about earlier, he forfeited identity, right? The father's response to that is restoration of identity. The father says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Can I just ask you a question? Just think about Who do you think in the house has the best robe? Father. The father's got the best robe. Father said, hey, grab one of my robes, put it on him. Why? Him for a servant. He's a son. And when you look off into the distance, maybe you see him walking in the field. Maybe you see him going through the land. But when you see him, even from a distance, you're going to see that robe and you're going to say, wait a minute, that's not a servant. Wait, is that the father? I can't tell. Because he's robed in what the father wears. Isaiah tells us we've been robed in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus, who knew no sin, took our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. The identity restored here is saying, I'm not only going to call you a son, but I'm going to robe you like one so that nobody can mistake you. That's the thing. We come back, and then all of a sudden, sometimes in the church world, we're like, oh, sister so-and-so's back. Brother so-and-so's back. Did you hear what they've been going through? Did you hear about this? We need to pray for them. Prayer gossip. what it is. We need to pray for them. You know, they've been through a lot, you know. I once heard my father-in-law say, Gossip is just something you tell somebody one person at a time. Because you don't get up and proclaim all this stuff. But if you tell it one, one person at a time. We're quick to do that in the church world. We're quick to cut people down. And all of a sudden, we reduce them into, into just servants. We reduce them into mistaken identities. We reduce them into something they can never come back from. But the Father says, I'm going to put a robe on you, and nobody can mistake you. Not the servants, not the world, not your big brother. Nobody's going to mistake that you're robed in the best robe of the house. He restores identity. God can take something beautiful out of something broken. We talked about it a little bit in the women's conference. But he takes something broken and he makes from it something so beautiful. This son who starts off by saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but you're as good as dead to me. It's not only brought back home, but it's restored to sonship. 
And right now, I feel like God is calling some of you to make that journey back home. It's not that you're lost. It's just that you're not home. Maybe you've tied yourself to strangers who don't value what you know you're supposed to value. They don't love God. They don't talk about things the way you know you're supposed to talk about them. They don't show compassion to people the way you know you should. And something on the inside of you says, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. This isn't right. I want to tell you that it's not too late to get up and recognize there's a father on a porch who's waiting to run and sweep you off your feet and robe you in his righteousness and remind you of who you always were. The story he has designed for you when he wove you together, but making provision for it by the blood of Jesus. And now your story can live to be a testimony that changes somebody else's story.